Here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. My name is Dosta, and today I'd like to talk about the book A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. I hope I've pronounced her name right. This really is a gorgeous book. I'm so happy to be presenting this to you. There's so much juice, and it really is a magnificent and detailed tapestry which she weaves with this highly dense and insightful piece of writing that she's put together for this book. So there's a lot to go through, and we're going to take our time. One thing I'll say quickly about format is I'll be reading passages from the book, these quotes that have jumped out from me, jumped out for me, and each time I read a quote, I'm going to leave a little bit of silence, a little bit of a gap. So that silence is just so you can listen to yourself and to see what your response to the writing is. So take it as a time to meditate on what you've heard. So that's a little bit about the format. Now, what to say about this work? Well, it's a modern work. It was released in 2005. So it's modern literature. And it's really a post, post-modern work. It's a second-tier work if you're plugging it into Spiral Dynamics. And I don't want to get too caught up into a conversation about what is postmodernism and what is post-postmodernism. That's probably a conversation we can have another time. But in a nutshell, all we really need to understand here is that she's drawing from multiple disciplines. Which means it's a work of a kind of history. She draws on history. And then she also draws on her own personal experiences. So it's autobiographical. And then it's also geographical. There's a biology and a geography to it. There's a science to it. So there are the sciences involved. And there's also certain value spheres that she pushes through. Most notably the green meme, environmental care. And the green meme is the postmodern meme. It's the pluralistic meme. Now the first wave of postmodernism was sort of like, wow, we can recontextualize things. We can change meanings of things. Look at this, look at that. Look at all the crazy things we can do. We can put tins of food as artworks and we can sell a picture of a tin of food as an artwork. An artwork doesn't have to be a painting. It can just be a piece of tin food. That's an art. This is art. Look at this. And she does talk about art. She does talk about the early Dadaists and the Expressionists. No, not the Expressionists. The... Uh, the the postmodernists in the the very early sense she talks about one of the these artists that 
really had that sort of attitude, that spark of, hey, look, let's change things around and really mix things up and let me challenge your understanding of what something means by completely changing its context. And that as first wave or early postmodernist is different to what we say here about Solnit as being a postmodernist, which is where she's a little bit more mature about the sources that she draws from and the way in which she weaves things together. And there is a there is a difference. It's it's in what you choose to comment on. And it's quite hard to really put her into black and white because she's not entirely pushing a morality or a value or a philosophy. And she does draw on the ancient philosophers as well and Greek mythology. It's a very eclectic collection of sources that she's got. And there's also this this well well let me let me back up. I don't want to get too far off this this uh postmodern it's 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 early the difference between early and late postmodernism is clear in this work. And I hope that becomes clear as we talk more. It's the charm. It's the charm that she has. And the charm really comes across with with a romanticism and the individuality of the writer, of the voice, is what makes it so appealing. It's what makes this work so unique. And somehow she she blurs that very well with her sources and with her statement and what her philosophy is. So it's a it's a very it's a, it's very hard to comment on. It's quite difficult to put it into even just new and old postmodernism and even we can do the same with her romanticism. She's she's not entirely a romantic even though there is so much of the the personal in this work. There is so much involved in the personal experience, the subjective experience. And maybe romanticism or being a romantic is a conversation that is much bigger, much like postmodernism. We can say that there is the romantic period which was the pre-modern, that was before the modern era. Well, even this word, see, see, this is my, this is my constant struggle, is that every time I dive into a word, I see that that word is connected and needs a definition, and it's connected to every other definition. So this, okay, let's, let's stick with, let's come back to modernism. Plant a flag for modern, We've moved on from postmodern, and let's stick with romantic for now. Now, there's the romantic period, and then there is the romantic as an attitude, romanticism, and then there is a romance, and these are three different things. So, she does talk a little bit 
about romance. And she also does have a little bit of the romantic as an attitude, which is more for her a nostalgia, a melancholy, a sort of quiet enjoyment of... It's almost like enjoying being sad. It's almost like enjoying being lonely. This sort of romantic. And then she also does draw on the romantic period. So that's what makes this work so colourful, so complex. Now when now let's come back to this word modern. We'll do a quick rundown on that, just so we can move forward. Modern is a funny word because you say something is modern if it's new. But then there is also the modern period, the Industrial Revolution. Or just before, just around the, the Industrial Revolution. That's what we say is the, the modern period. And then we have the postmodern period. But still, see, this is why a word like modern is so confusing. Because you can go to something today and you say, oh, that's very modern. I don't know if many people really use that word in that way. But that's the trick of this difference because modern is a word that threads all the way throughout and and even you can see you can see this movie which is set in pre-modern times now this is a real head trip for you it's it's before the industrial revolution and the character will say that's very modern that's a very modern dress or a very modern artwork or something like this and you know there's something funny when they that character says that because it's pre-modern. It's not modern to you. They're set in 18-somethings, 17-somethings, 16-somethings, or even later, even older, even further ago, even longer ago than that, even deeper in history than that. So the word modern is one of those ones which you keep a bell on, and every time you hear it, it goes, ding, what does this mean? Check the context. Along with postmodern and romantic and post-postmodernism and post-romanticism and post-modern romanticism and modern post-modern romanticism. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's dig into it. <laughs> This book is beautiful. It's a, well, I guess it's filed under philosophy. And it is a philosophy, but it's... Well, let me read some for you. She's talking about her childhood. She's talking about her education. She's talking about these little family lunches that she has. She's talking about the unknown, which is what this book is about. A field guide to getting lost. How do you get lost? That's really the question, the central question. What does it mean to be lost? Have you ever asked yourself that? Are you lost? Are you lost right now? Well, do you know where you are? 
That's really the central thesis of this book. And she's talking about these things, and let me read some to you. Quote, she says, A student came in bearing a quote from what she said was the pre-Socratic philosopher Meno. It read, How will you go about finding that thing, the nature of which is totally unknown to you? The question she carried struck me as the basic tactical question in life. The things we want are transformative. We don't know or only think we know what is on the other side of that transformation. Love, wisdom, grace, inspiration. How do you go about finding these things that are in some ways about extending the boundaries of the self into unknown territory, about becoming someone else? Another thing I'll mention generally about this work is about the complexity of the quotations. Now here she's talking about a student who is quoting a philosopher. So in your ABC essay writing, you have your commentary, which you write, which is where you're saying what's happening, what you think, this is your idea, this is your interpretation, this is your summary. And then you have your quotes, which is, well, this is what someone else said. And I'm using what they said to support my ideas, to weave my tapestry. And that's sort of ABC essay writing. That's ABC academia when it gets deeper than that, and in this work, it's a quote of a quote at some times. And there are quotations within quotations. And you might be quoting, she quotes commentaries on quotes. And even quotes on quotes. And that's, that's really one of the, that's really an it's a rabbit hole of the academia world, and it can get out of hand. You can be having quotes on quotes on quotes, and the whole thing. If you ever read some, if you've ever read A.C. Grayling, this modern, he's a living philosopher, and he's got this book on friendship. This is what that book is like. It's a quote about a quote, and there's so many names, and it becomes a real brain fry. So the brain fry of quotes on quotes is one part of academia, but here she does it with charm. She does it with a smoothness, with a poeticism, which means it's not highbrow, complex academia for the sake of, oh, look at how big our brains are. Look at how many books we've read. So she's talking about this student, which has on their T-shirt, how do you go about finding the thing that the nature of which is totally unknown to you? And it's this old philosopher, Menno, pre-Socratic, 
That means over two and a half thousand years ago, this question was being asked. And she says, well, this is my basic tactical question for life. That seems like the number one question. What if we, what, what does life look like when we put that as our number one problem? How do you find what you don't know? How do you go about expanding yourself into unknown territory? How do you find love, wisdom, grace, and inspiration when on the other side of that transformation, you don't know what it will look like? And an immediate question is, well, become what you're not. So do something you don't do. Go somewhere you haven't been before. Speak something you haven't said before. Do something you haven't done before. These sorts of things. What is out of character for you? Well, how do I find what's out of character? Well, take a look at what's in character and then do the opposite. Are you a quiet person? Be loud. Are you an introverted person? Be extroverted. Are you a dumb person? Well, if you're listening to this, you're probably not dumb. If you're listening to me, you're actually probably a bit of a nerd. Well, if you're a smart person then, what does it mean to be dumb? What does it mean to be ignorant? Can you pretend in a conversation to just say, look, I don't know what's going on. Give me your opinion. Instead of always offering up your opinion, well, what's the opposite of that? You just listen to someone. You can change your diet. You can change your habits. You can explore different things. You can travel to different countries. What does it mean to really step into the unknown? And to really lose yourself. To really lose that thing that you're so comfortable with being. The habit of what it's like to be you. Do you know that that's a habit? Do you know that's that's something you're simply comfortable with? And can you take... Just have the intention, have the push to say, you know what, I don't want to be what I've been recently. I don't want to feel how I've been feeling. I want to feel something different. And it might not mean that I have to go out and travel or try different things or have different conversations. Let's just work with the feeling. How do I lose this sense of me? Which brings me to another little passage I'd like to read where she's talking about the essayist Walter Benjamin, the philosopher Walter Benjamin. And this feeling of being lost doesn't always have to be such a action-driven thing. It doesn't have to be so physical. It can be internal. She's concerned with the internal world. She's concerned with she's inter- she's concerned with the subjective experience, the phenomenological experiencing, the qualia of your reality. So she says, quote, 
not to find one's way in a city may well be uninteresting and banal. It requires ignorance, nothing more, says the 20th century philosopher, essayist, Walter Benjamin. But to lose oneself in a city, as one loses oneself in a forest, that calls for quite a different schooling. To lose yourself, a voluptuous surrender, lost in your arms, lost to the world, utterly immersed in what is present, so what its surrounding fades away. In Benjamin's terms, to be lost is to be fully present, and to be fully present is to be capable of being in uncertainty and mystery, and one does not get lost but loses oneself, with the implication that it is a conscious choice, a chosen surrender, a psychic state achievable through geography. That thing, the nature of which is totally unknown to you, is usually what you need to find, and finding it is a matter of getting lost. The word lost comes from the Old Norse loss, meaning disbanding of an army, and this origin suggests soldiers falling out of formation to go home, a truce with the wide world. I worry now that many people never disband their armies, never go beyond what they know. Advertising, alarmist news, technology, incessant busyness, and the design of public and private space conspire to make it so. So there's at least two things in that I'd like to say. And one is this difference in not knowing your way and being lost. And Walter Benjamin is saying to not find your way is just ignorance. But to really be lost and to lose yourself, as if you're lost in the forest, almost like a kind of freedom, that takes something else. To step into this mystery, this psychic state, a chosen surrender, that's very different to an indifference or a just a, oh, I don't know where I'm going. So there's an alertness to being lost. There's a, an awareness and a real intention, a real honest to, to find the unknown, it takes an honest step up. It takes, a, it, it takes a guts. It takes an autonomy. And when she says advertising, alarmist news, technology, incessant busyness, and the design of public and private space somehow bring us to be in this place where we never get the chance to disband our armies, as we say, which is as we were talking about before, which is just your habits of your feelings. Your army is your habit of how you feel each day. And the advertising you see over and over again and the alarmist news, 
Wow, do you know what alarmist news is? Can you recognize alarmist news? It's really quite alarming. <laughs> alarmist news is alarming. Do you know what that means? And there's a whole there's a whole media on this. There's a whole branch of human knowledge I don't want to I don't want to use the word knowledge for it because it's not it's not really knowledge I wouldn't degrade the word knowledge to the level of alarmist news this is not knowledge this is just inciting fear this is I, I can feel myself being very bitter about it I can feel myself being very quite quite disgusted really with the fact that so many people, the common mob, listen to words that incite an emotion of fear and unrest. And really, alarm. It's alarmist news. It's alarmist media. And in this age, it's the thing that gets the clicks it's the thing that gets the attention. It's the thing that gets the views. So let me, let me, you know what? Fuck you. I am fucking angry now. I'm getting roiled up now. This has triggered me. You okay with this? I'm triggered. And I'm alarmed. So let me, let me turn it back on the alarmist news. Let me get angry and say, Alarmist news, you're the thing that you should be alarmed about. When you hear alarmist news, you should be alarmed. This is how I feel. I'm alarmed that there is news causing people to be alarmed. Can you, can you understand that? I hope you can wrap your head around that. Why isn't the news focused on more positive things? Why is it? And it's always going to be this way. I mean, let's be real. And I don't mean to start a rant on the common mob. That's a, that's such a cliche of a rant. That's such a, you know, I don't want to be that guy in the bar that's sitting around and saying, yeah, society, yeah, society sucks. Oh, yeah, the news is suck. Oh, yeah, it's all a conspiracy theory. No, I don't want to. Let, let's not go far down that. That's not a, that's not a fun because you see, then the, the alarmist news gets you, or the media gets you, and, and, and it's almost like I've fallen for the trap myself. Even though in a more complex way, and maybe in, with a little bit more awareness, I've, I've seen what this alarmist news is, but I'm still alarmed, just not for the conventional reasons. I guess a more mature side of me, or a more insightful side of me would be able to relax and say, well, this is how the world is and, well, what do we do to make our step towards making it, making others a little bit more aware or just, just pointing it out in a more graceful way. So, yeah, alarmist news triggers me and I endeavor to deal with that in a more mature way and with more awareness. 
And really, it comes back to being lost. It comes back to stepping into the unknown. It comes back to this central philosophical question, which is how do you go about finding the thing that you don't know how to find, that you don't know how it exists? And there's a lot in the advertising, the technology, the design of public and private space, and alarmist news, which doesn't help to answer that question. It's a distraction from that question. It's a dead end which does not bring you along the path of stepping into the unknown. So another book or another reference that Solnit brings into her narrative, her essay, is by Walden. Oh, sorry, it's called Walden. And it's by, let me just check. It's called Life in the Woods, Walden, or Life in the Woods, by David, sorry, Henry David Thoreau. So he's a philosopher who, in, he lived in the 1800s, he decided, you know what, I've had enough with society, I'm going to go off and build a hut in the woods. And in this book he talks about how much it cost him, and what he used for materials, and what he ate, and what his problems were, what he did for heating, what sort of furniture he had. And it's really quite a remarkable book because then, of course, not only all the practical stuff that is there, but there's also the philosophical questions of, well, do you get lonely? Or what's it like to be in nature? And when visitors come, what happens? So it's a really uh, a fascinating book. And I guess it's, well, it's a classic piece of philosophy, modern philosophy. And one of the impressions I got from that book was just how value is created when he was building his house. The cost, this idea of a cost and a value was really made clear because the the monetary cost, and there was a small cost because he had to buy nails and certain things, That was very small, and yet he was able to use natural materials and his own work to build something of very good value. He built quite a good house. He improved the land in which he lived. And that really is a powerful insight. That is a big insight to find the difference between value and money or worth and cost. And you really get a sense of it when he's describing his cabin in the woods or his place where he lives to be lost in the woods. So she draws on this book and let me read what she says. She says, quote, 
It is a surprising and memorable as well as valuable experience to be lost in the woods at any time, he wrote in Walden. Not till we are completely lost or turned around, for a man needs only to be turned around once with his eyes shut in this world to be lost, do we appreciate the vastness and strangeness of nature. Not till we are lost, in other words, not till we have lost the world, do we begin to find ourselves and realize that where we are and the infinite extent of our relations. Thoreau is playing with a biblical question about what it profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Loss, lose the whole world, he asserts. Get lost in it and find your soul. So there's a deep logic to that. If you gain the world but lose your soul, if that's the law of nature, which we're working on, this biblical question or this biblical idea, well, if that's true, then, well, why don't we reverse it? Lose the world and find yourself. So how do you lose yourself? How do you get lost in the woods? And his answer is, well, you just turn around with your eyes closed once and that's enough. Go off into the woods to be lost. And it really, it really does take, you really have to know this. You really have to know that there's an art to getting lost. That's really such a, it's almost like an unsaid statement of the book. Well, it's the statement of the whole book, really, which is to know that there's an art to being lost. Because usually when you're lost, if you're lost in the woods, now that, that can actually be a real problem. You need to get shelter. You need to get water. You need to make it back to your hut. And you might not have a map. It might be unmapped territory. And this can be a real problem. But Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, is saying at that moment when you are lost, if you're aware of it as an opportunity to opening to the expanse of existence, to the infinite extent of our relations, to the vastness of our relationship to the world, then that opportunity can be taken. That moment can be opening. That moment can be a moment of awe, a moment of beauty, and a moment of forgetting who you are. A moment of losing yourself. 
So she goes on to start talking about the color blue. The world is blue at its edges and in its depths, she says. And she goes on to have these beautiful descriptions of the water as a color of blue and the sky as a color of blue. And there's the melancholy blue and there's the dreamy blue. And many, there's sort of every second chapter in this book is called The Blue of of Distance. The Blue of Distance. And so this color blue is significant to location. And it's significant to what's far away. She talks about this horizon, this longing this desire to reach something that's far away has has blue tied up with it because the horizon is blue. And this difference between here and there is filled with blue. So let me read you let me read you a big chunk, a bit of a chunk of what she says when she's talking about blue and the difference between here and what's far away and that thing that's far away the horizon never comes so let me let me read you she says quote we treat desire as a problem to be solved address what desire is for and focus on that something and how to acquire it rather than on the nature and then and the sensation of desire though often It is the distance between us and the object of desire that fills the space in between with the blue of longing. I wonder sometimes whether with a slight adjustment of perspective it could be cherished as a sensation on its own terms. Since it is as inherent to the human condition as blue is to distance, if you can look across the distance without wanting to close it up, if you can own your own longing, in the same way that you own the beauty of that blue that can never be possessed. For something of this longing will, like the blue of distance, only be relocated, not assanged, but acquisition and arrival, just as the mountains cease to be blue when you arrive among them, and the blue instead tints the next beyond. Pay attention to the feeling you get when there's a difference between where you are and where you want to be. Pay attention to what the feeling of desire is as opposed to the object of desire. Instead of trying to solve your desire as if it were a problem by getting that thing, learn to sit with that space. 
sit with the sensation of desire. And notice how it is in your body. Notice how it is to you personally. And know that that experience is a part of your reality. It's a part of what it means for you to exist. And you can embrace that. You can embrace that melancholy. You can embrace that sadness. And it's possible even to enjoy it. And this is what it means to be a romantic. A classic story of the romantic or the romance is that the man loves the woman, but he can't have her for whatever reason. And it's not always the man or the woman. It could be the other way around. It could be the woman loves the man. But she can't have him. Because he's gone to war. They were engaged to be married. And they were going to be married until the war broke out. And their young passionate affair, their honeymoon, their joy the world opening up to them in this magical relationship was brought to an untimely end. And there's a moment where he's on the ship and she's on the dock and the ship is pulling away and they're kissing. And it's that romantic, ah, I'm going to miss you. And now that woman is in this place. She has this place. And this man is off on the horizons, over the horizon, so far away. And she feels blue. She feels melancholy. And here, Solnit is saying, well, you can sit with that. You can work with that. And there's something in the blue of distance which is related to that. She goes on to talk about some paintings where in the 1500s, the 1400s, those sort of pre, well, I guess they're pre-modern, they're pre-romantic paintings. It's funny that blue turns up as a theme before the romantic period. And and, And she's talking about how different painters use blue in the distance to have this mood of of longing and this sense of depth to their paintings. She also talks about photographs. There was a time when certain photography styles were blue Certain cameras only had blue, sort of like a black and white photo, but it's a blue tint. So she's got a lot of different comments and a lot of colourful collages around the colour blue. 
And we'll keep coming back to Blue as we make our way through this plot, this novel. The next thing I'd like to share, or the next passage that jumped out at me, was when she's talking about the path. Now, we've had a lot of conversations about the path, or different paths. And I really like this word, the path. The path. What is a path? What is the path and what is a path? It's really something that has been with me for a long time and probably, I'm guessing, will be for quite some time. And so she's talking about emptiness and being lost. And there's this passage where she's talking about a Tibetan sage and what the word a path means, or path means. So I'll read this quote for you. This is, a, this is quite interesting. She says, quote, Emptiness is the track on which the canted person moves, said a Tibetan sage 600 years ago, and the book where I found this edict followed it with an explanation with an exploration of the word track in Tibetan. Shal, a mark that remains after that which made it has passed by. A footprint, for example. In other contexts, shal is used to describe the sacred hollow in the ground where a house once stood, the channel worn through rock, where a river runs in flood, the indentation in the grass where an animal slept last night. All of these are shal, the impression of something that used to be there. A path is a shal because it is an impression in the ground left by regular tread of feet which had kept it clear of obstructions and maintained it for the use of others. As a shull, emptiness can be compared to the impression of something that used to be there. In this case, such an impression is formed by the indentation, hollows, marks and sacred left by the turbulence of selfish craving. In Yiddish, shal means a synagogue. But I was trying to send this missing ancestor not to temple, but to a path through an uninhabited expanse where heaven seems to come all the way down to your feet. There are many religious traditions and Tibetan religions or Tibetan traditions that speak about emptiness. Probably most commonly known is Buddhism. This idea of emptiness, 
relinquishing selfish craving. This is a very important concept to understand. This is a very important, well, it's an important path to follow. And this emptiness is, as she is illustrating here, as our author Solnit is illustrating, is the loss of the turbulence of a selfish craving. Because there's an unrest in craving. And this comes back to the difference between being lost and not knowing your way. When you're craving, you're not really exactly lost in this same sense. When you're craving, when you're having this selfish urge, then that's just selfish. That's not being lost. But to lose that urge, to let go of those desires, to move on in the same way that you walk a path and you leave a footprint, then that is emptiness. That is a... That is a bliss. Emptiness and bliss go together. And bliss is a quietness. It's a, it's a deep relaxation. And it's, it's hard to really say exactly what bliss is because it's quite, it's quite grand. It's quite big. And also quite subtle. She's talking about her ancestor here too, and how she's feeling about trying to convey this to the ancestor. So that's just an that's a side plot. That's not really central to our narrative. She also talks about these photos of her relatives and her understanding of her family, mostly her aunt and her memories of them, and how they're related to these photos. And she finds out later that actually, no, those photos didn't exist. You imagined them. And she lost a memory when her mother told her that. And she also has this moment where she remembers wearing this dress as a young girl. And her mother had kept the dress for many years, and then... Solnit had come back and opened up this box of memorabilia. And she'd remembered the dress as as wearing it at that size of, oh, this is how big it is. And when she saw it as an adult, she obviously it was a hundred times too small. It was, a, it was a girl's dress, a little girl's dress. And she thought, whoa. And in that moment, poof, the memory was gone. Something shifted. She lost the memory. So this idea of a memorabilia box full of photos of relatives or ornaments or clothing doesn't always quite work with preserving the memory. And to lose a memory, well, is that a liberation? 
Is that a habit that we need to get over? Is that a barrier to romanticism or is it a part of romanticism? So these are, these are things which we'll readdress as we keep going through this plot and she brings this up again in different ways. Now we come to the part of this book, the chapter, which struck me the most. It stood out the most. And it really is a remarkable story of being lost like I could never have imagined before. So just think for a moment, how lost have you been in your life? Geographically speaking, I don't mean spiritually or emotionally, I mean literally lost. Maybe you've been driving in a new city and for a few moments you thought, oh, I've lost my way. I'll just keep driving around till I find my way and then you do. Maybe you've been on a bushwalk and you've been out and about and you're thinking, oh, I'm not entirely sure if this is the way. Now, if you get lost on a bushwalk, it might be that there's quite a tale to tell if you really get lost. But even when you're on a bushwalk, you can lose a little bit of a way and still come back without it being too much of a drama. And what if you're traveling overseas? It might be that you're in a place and you don't entirely know how to get where you're going or where exactly you are and you have much less of an idea of where you are because you're in a different city. So these are sort of common scenarios of being lost for you and me, the common folk. But now let's think about this. If we take the idea of being lost or the scenario of being lost and we ask ourselves now out of the entire spectrum of humans and human life and human history who do you think was the most lost when was someone really lost let's find the outliers let's find the extremes let's find those people who lay us in the dust, those people that really were lost. And the answer that comes up in this chapter, in this book by Rebecca Solnit, is that the most lost people were the early explorers. It was the people who, of the new world, when the edges of the map were not entirely clear, in a time when we didn't know what sort of planet we were living on entirely, and human understanding of geography was much more limited than it is today. And there were these people who would go out and explore. They would go out and they would be on this quest to discover a new land. Now, these people got lost. These people, in a sense, were lost and she has this charming passage. This really is a beautiful gem of history that she has found and she's brought it to life with her gorgeous writing 
which is this expedition in 1527. So half a millennia ago, 500 years ago. And it was the early explorer Alva Nuex Quebexa de Vaca. Now, I don't know if I've pronounced that right. I'll write it down in the description so you can look it up. But this is a Spaniard who was exploring America. And he was one of the first people to explore America. Now imagine, just, just imagine what that's like. Imagine going to a land, traveling to a land where you really do have no idea what it's going to be like. In a sense, we get that when we travel overseas today. But still, it's quite easy to travel overseas and and know you're going to be all right. There's going to be there's going to be lifelines. You've got ways of doing research. You've got a, a rough idea of what you're getting yourself into. Not like these early explorers. Now, first of all, they would have to sail to this land. I can't imagine what sailing in 1527 would be like. I imagine it would be a long journey. I imagine it would be a pretty rough journey. The supplies of the ship would be limited. Your diet would be limited. There would be certain work that you'd have to do. I probably would have been a, a not a very high-level manager. I would have been a moderate manager. I wouldn't have been first mate or captain. I also don't think I would have been one of the runts. And there's this politics or this dynamic of all the people on board. Because you do have a captain and you do have to do what he says. And you've got your relations with your shipmates, the people that you're sailing with. You're in a closed environment with them. You're working with them all around the clock. You're taking shifts to have night watch and these sorts of things. And you're living in, you're sleeping in closed spaces. And you've got your rations. Who does what work? When? Why? This is all part of sailing in the olden days. The olden day sailing. I can't imagine what that's like. It would have been a long journey. It would have been a rough journey. And those ships, they're not like they are today. The danger of sinking, being caught in a storm, is a very real danger. They're nowhere near as safe. And it's not like ships today where you can just jump on the life raft, send in the helicopters... No, that was a real danger. And that was always there. And a storm could come without them knowing. So we're on this ship. And we're with this crew. And we're going to this land which has been discovered. It was discovered, I think, this region, Juan Ponce de Leon. He named it Florida. So this Spaniard is going to the area which is now Florida. And only 14 years before it had been discovered and explored initially. But, I mean, even if it's been discovered, how much information do you know of this land? Well, it's got trees. You know that much. There are natives there. You know that much. 
There are most likely mountains. And there's certain terrain. And there's open land. But beyond that, we don't really know. Even the climate. I mean, is there winter? Is it summer? Is it the rainy season? And we can take a rough guess because we know exactly... Uh, well, not exactly, but we have a, a bit of an idea about the equator. But even that information isn't entirely available in this age. So we know very little. We know very little about this, this place that we're sailing to. And it comes to this point where Cabeza de Vaca is... Well, he's actually not the leader of this expedition. He's the second in command. And as the story goes, the leader, Navarez, gets they arrive at this shore, on the shore of this place, of this new uncharted territory. And the leader says, okay, we're going inland to explore. I'm taking half the crew, and you stay here with the ships. And the second in the command, Cabeza, the Vaca. I'll, I'll just I'll call him I'll call him Deva- I don't know what to call him because I can't pronounce his name so badly. I mean I can pronounce it badly. I can't pronounce it well. This is my problem. Cabeza de Vaca. I guess I should say it in a Spanish accent. I don't know. I'm not even going to try. The second in command, Cabaza, he says, "No, that's not going to work. I can see that you haven't got enough supplies. You're going to be in big trouble if you go alone. So I'm going to go with you." And also, he doesn't, and, and his reasoning was, well, he doesn't want to be left behind and to see that the expedition out into land has failed and for later for someone to question and say, well, why didn't you go help him or why did you just stay in the comfort of this ship and you didn't go for it? So the question of his honor and his place and the, the rightfulness, the do your duty, go with your captain, follow your captain, sort of attitude led this Spaniard to go inland. And there is another incentive, and this is an incentive for all of them on this trip, really, and that is the discovery of gold. Now, there is a very big payoff to these long expeditions, and not only gold, but also land. It might be that they turn up somewhere, and in a few short years, there's a move to colonize an area. Now, you get first dibs on land if you're part of that crew. And it might be that you find gold there. And you can become extremely rich with a gold finding. And if there's a big gold finding and you're dividing it between the crew and there's a a rich land full of natural resources and you're dividing that between the crew and then in a few short years... There's colonization happening, and there's a town building up. Towns could be built very quickly. They could grow very quickly in those days. Then that's a very big incentive. You're looking at a very rich retirement if you are one of those people. Very comfortable. Very wealthy. So this gamble of going to this foreign land and exploring out into uncharted territory has the incentive in the back of everyone's mind of, whoa, this could be a, an El Dorado 
or the promised land. That idea of, I mean, there's an archetype in biblical and ancient scriptures of the promised land. So there's always an element of that. And they actually heard from one of the natives that there's gold and plenty of everything they wanted. And so they decide to go off. They leave the ships and they go inland, not knowing if they'll have enough, have enough supplies. Now, if you have enough supplies, that, that's another unknown. That's another risk. Now, you have a certain amount of food. You have a certain amount of water. And you're going through this land and you don't know what's up ahead. And you're just hoping that you'll find somewhere with fresh water. You're just hoping you'll find somewhere with animals to hunt, with food to scavenge or, what do you call it? Hunter-gatherer? Food to gather. And of course, as they went inland, they did find places with ripe cornfields, They went through lakes and they went through skirmishing with natives. So this is another problem. If you meet the natives, you can say, well, these people have gunpowder. They have guns, so they can shoot them, can't they? Now, I don't know if they did have guns. I think they did in this age. When was gunpowder invented? That'll have to be for another part of the research. But even if you have guns, you can say, well, you can shoot a native. Well... Not exactly, because you have a limited number and you don't want to be wasting your shots because that's your hunting food. And also skirmishing. You're skirmishing with the natives. It's not as though it's a war where it's like, okay, we line up on either side. This is not the days of the Civil War. This is long before that. So the locals, the natives, they know how to sneak up on you and they catch you by surprise. And they have armor-piercing arrows. And that's not to say anything of the disease, of the hunger, of the exhaustion. And they're making their way through this land, never really knowing where they are. Really, truly lost. And imagine what it's like to be in that group. Imagine you're tired. Imagine you get sick and your rations of food are not enough to keep you going and you wake up the next morning and it's the captain's orders for us to move on and you think, no, I can't do this. I need to rest. I need to stay. And this dynamic of relations of who, who, who goes first and who goes on and when do we go on well, there is a chance there of mutiny. That's how mutinies happen. That's how disagreements happen. They're not always peaceful relations in these groups. And when people are hungry and they're tired and they're desperate, then they really are they really are making tough decisions. There's a lot of tension between them. And say you find a place where there is water and then you decide to go on, well you could say, Well, at least here we have water. At least here we can survive. At least here there are not too many natives hassling us. So this group comes to the Nile uh, Delta. I think it's the Nile Delta. The Mississippi Delta. Sorry, not the Nile. That's the wrong side of the world. Other side of the world. The Mississippi Delta. 
And the captain takes the strongest and healthiest men on this barge that they build to row ahead, leaving the Cabeza, the Vanka, in command of all the weaker people. And they get to the point where they're basically lost. They're all health-stricken, they're all tired, and they're all on the verge of death. And he says, okay, let's pluck up the courage one last time to make one last attempt at surviving to cross the Mississippi Delta. And they get on their barge and they go across and they basically reach this point where it's just Cabeza sort of haggardly steering the raft and all the men are basically dead on there. And he says, oh, I would have welcomed death rather than seeing so many around me in such a condition. He's he's, he's at the point where he'd he'd rather die than be in the situation that he is. And they push on, and they go down into what is basically an island in Texas. And they do find a place. And once they reach land again, they begin to recover their senses and their hope. And finding land is sort of this way of stepping back into an ability to spur yourself on. So imagine being on that raft. And and what happens is, well, they find out the the crew that went ahead of them only had a few survivors. They find that out later. But what, what happens when the barge arrives on the new land and they've crossed is that it crashes and all their supplies get lost. And, and some of the crew drown. And they turn up on the shore, it says, as naked as the day they were born. Now, how about that for a next level being lost? How lost can you get? You're starving. You've been traveling for months. You're in a land which you know nothing about. And you turn up and your raft sinks. And you somehow scramble your way out of the water, spluttering and splurting. And you've taken off your clothes because you might drown. You might have only had rags to wear to begin with. You come out on that shore and you're in that land and you're naked. You've got nothing. How is that for being lost? So what they do to get out of this, well, they don't really get out of it because they run into some natives. And the natives enslave them. And they give them a life of what he says is unbearable work. So it's hard work digging roots and digging water canals and chopping things and carrying things. So it's hard labor. There's only a few of them left. Many, many people have died. Much of the crew has died. Almost all of them. I think they started out with something like 600 on the initial fleet. And by this stage, they're down to, I think, something like 60 men or something like that. 
And then through this slavery, even more of them are dying. And they get reduced down to no language, so they can't talk. They have no clothes. They're not given clothes. No weapon. No power. So you've gone from being the second in command to this Cabeza Spaniard. He's been second in command. Now all of a sudden he's a slave in this tribe. And you've just been completely wrecked out of everything. And then it becomes a lifestyle. You're a slave for some time. To be a slave, that really is lost. And to be lost in a slave, as a slave in a, in a foreign land which hasn't been charted before, now that's, that's really lost. So Gobeza is the hero of the story. And he manages, after some time, to escape his slavery. And he builds a career as a trader of seashells and beans and orca. I don't know what orca is. But he somehow escapes and learns to trade with the locals, trade with the indigenous people. And after some time, after some years, he actually becomes a slave again. And by some miracle, he meets up with some of the survivors who are also slaves, and then they try to, and they and they do escape their slavery for a second time. And they keep traveling, they keep moving around, they keep running away. Because if you're in a region where you've been put as a slave to work by the natives, you need to make some distance in that region. There's always a chance you're going to run into them again. So it's a remarkable strength of character that these men have. And Cabeza really had a, had a way of reinventing himself. And he keeps traveling and keeps making these routes. And he carries burning brands so, so they, they remain naked. And because they were naked in the scorching sun so much, one of the reports said that the men shed their skin twice a year like snakes. So what happens to your skin when you're outdoors, naked, for years? I can't imagine. In the sun, boils, blisters, chafing. Rashes, dirt. And I imagine there would be a amount of like a callus or a toughening, an adjustment to the environment. Might be that they're very dark skinned now. I mean, they're Spaniards. I don't know how dark skinned these Spaniards are, but they might become a bit more dark skinned, however dark they are, once they've been in the in the sun. For a few years naked. So what a way to travel through a land. What a way to make your way across a territory. After almost nine, almost ten years, 
the the group is down to just four, three or four of them. And at certain times, Cabeza is off on his own. And he's adjusted. And he's learnt to talk with the locals. He's learnt to talk with the natives. He's learnt their languages. He's learnt to trade with them. And there is this rhythm of being welcomed into certain tribes and to be seen as a healer and to be interacting with the environment and to live off the environment and to live by the way of the stars and the sun and the sea and the and the wind and of course in this in this time almost 10 years later there is other there are other settlers arriving there are other explorers arriving and then there's this confrontation where the explorers and the locals the the natives are together and Cabeza is there and he's he's on the it's sort of almost like he's on the side of the natives it's almost like he's one of them he's turned into one of them and he's quite uncomfortable with facing people from his old world and it takes quite some time it took him quite some time to once he'd reconnected with his old society which he did, took him quite some time to put clothes on and to be sleeping in a normal bed, to be eating those normal foods. He had gone about naked and had lost his greed, his fear. He'd lost his ambition for the gold. He'd learnt several languages. He'd become a healer. He had come to admire and identify the native nations. So it's one thing to be a first mate of a fleet or the captain of a crew. It's another thing to be a healer. There's something a bit more spiritual. There's something more dreamtime-like to be a healer among native tribes. And if you had to ask him, which one would you prefer? Would you be the, the admirable, of, ad, admirable admiral of a fleet of ships or a healer well i don't know maybe it's a certain point cabeza would have said you know there's something quite deep about connecting with the land and the people so this story is is astonishing really and how does it happen i mean it's such a long process it must have been such a long journey that it wasn't that one day they woke up and they said, oh, now I'm comfortable, now I'm found again. Because really when those people from their original society turned up, that wouldn't have been a moment of, oh, I've been lost and now I'm found. And it was really Cabeza that had changed. It was that he was a different man a completely different man in every way that made it so that when he bent back to the modern society, that was like being lost again. And I can't imagine. And not all people did live through these times to tell this tale. I mean, the reason we're talking about Cabeza is because he did live. 
He survived. He was one of the very few. He might have been the only man on that crew who survived. And the guts, the determination, the strength that it takes to have lived that life, I can't imagine. And the ability to adapt, an openness to change, and an inventiveness, and an industrialness. When we talk about industrial, or inventiveness, or resourcefulness, and we talk about those words in today's age, we usually think about business, starting a business, or business management, creating a product, entrepreneurship, or investing, making money. And this is our technologically driven age. But one of the questions that's raised again and again in this book is, well, where is your resourcefulness really best? Where is that best applied? And if you apply it like Abeza does in the ability to survive in any old, in out, in out, Outrageous. Well, no, I shouldn't say any old or any situation. I mean, what strength must he have got? What strength of character would he have got? Like you lived in the native land for 10 years, naked. What kind of retirement did he have? What kind of life did he have after that? And the remarkable ability that he had to actually sit down and, and write his autobiography and tell the tale. It's just, wow, what a trip. Most men died. And as we move on in our plot, there are other examples of people who, I mean, it's a genre. The, the discovery of America and the exploration of America and the history of foreigners interacting with Native Americans, the Indians... That's a genre. That's a huge history. And there's so many stories. There are many stories of people who have survived or not in different ways. And she goes on to talk about one who married away and she had this child with a indigenous man and she sort of escaped again and then went back again. So that wasn't really so much a journey. It was more of a integrating and a staying and there was also slavery, there was also war. Later there was a lot of killing. I mean, there's a genocide there. There's a black history to America. And I don't know much about that. Many countries have their black history. In Australia, I'm Australian, so I can talk a little bit more about that. But we know there is a genocide that occurred for the natives when this country was being colonized. We know there was a official government policies which sought to rid the land of the aboriginals. And it's a very black history. It's a very dark thing that is very... Well, I haven't been deep into it myself. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but there's, there is something there that needs to be understood. There's something there that 
you need to recognize in your country's history. And every country has a black history. There's something in there. And every country has a different way of talking about it. Many countries don't want to talk about it. Now, if you're American, if you're American, do you know, do you know what the settlers did to the Indians? How's your history there? I hope you know more than me. So that's a big tangent. I don't want to go too far on that. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. And that's really outside my area of expertise. What we should do is we should get my sister on here and she'll talk about the black history of Australia. She knows a lot about it. She's written, she's written books on it. And she feels very deeply about it. And then someone else for the Americans. We should get someone else for the Americans. And we should get someone else for the Germans or the Spaniards or the Italians. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's move on with our plot. So, being lost and in a land is quite astonishing for the period of the 1500s. And let me just read this sort of summary of this chapter. And there's a couple of ideas in here as well that we can talk about, but let me just read a quote to help tie up this story of Cabeza. She writes, quote, There are those who receive as birthright an adequate or at least unquestioned sense of self, and those who set out to reinvent themselves for survival or for satisfaction and travel far. Some people inherit values and practices as a house they inhabit. Some of us have to burn down that house, find our own ground, build from scratch, even as a psychological metamorphosis. As a cultural metamorphosis, the transition is far more dramatic. The people thrown into other cultures go through something of the anguish of the butterfly whose body must disintegrate and reform more than once in its life cycle. In her novel Regeneration, Pat Baker writes of a doctor who knew only too well how often the early stages of change or cure may mimic deterioration. Cut a chrysalis open and you will find a rotting caterpillar. What you will never find is that mythical creature, half caterpillar, half butterfly, albeit emblem, albeit emblem of the human soul, for those whose cast of mind leads them to seek such emblems. No, the process of transformation consists almost entirely of decay. But the butterfly is so fit an emblem f for the human soul that its name in Greek is psyche, the word for soul. We have not much language to appreciate this phase of decay, this withdrawal, this era of ending that must precede beginning, nor of the violence of the metamorphosis, 
which is often spoken of as though it was as graceful as a flower blooming. She's intelligent enough to point out that not everyone has this lot in life. Some people are born with an adequate sense of self, she says. Others set out to reinvent themselves for many reasons. For many of us, it seems like there's something in our blood, almost like destiny, Not everyone does get to go into a different culture and go deep enough to adapt to it, to really be a part of it. And there's a very big difference between visiting a culture and living there and adapting to it. It really does take a long, a bit of time. It can take a long time. The people who go through this, she says, is like a butterfly. And the butterfly is a, is a, it's a symbol which is used quite a lot in spiritual worlds, spiritual speakers, comes up again and again as a metaphor for the journey of the soul. And this idea of deterioration, this idea of a crumbling, of a loss, goes with metamorphosis, it goes with transformation. And these explorers lost so much. These people who were in that new land, the Americas, in those early days, lost so much. And that's how they transformed so much. So it really does come back to what have you got to lose? And usually when we say this word, this phrase, what have you got to lose? It's said as a sort of, come on, you've got nothing to lose. It's going to be okay. Just give it a go. Just jump in. What have you got to lose? You've got nothing to lose. But on the contrary... In the case of the butterfly, in the case of your soul, your psyche, and in the case of Cabeza, the Spaniard who was journeying through this land, they have everything to lose. And you do have everything to lose. And when I say everything, I mean everything. We started talking about your general habits your patterns of mind, the feelings you have each day, these sorts of things. But really, to transform, you have to give up so much more of that. You'd have to give up everything.
and everything, what you are as everything, is always so much bigger than you can imagine. So much more than you can really know. And in a sense, you know, you learn how much you have to lose by losing it. You don't know what it's got till it's gone, that old cliché. That's another phrase that comes up again and again. Not always in spiritual circles. But how much have you got to learn? Well, you can learn how much that is. By losing. By stepping into loss as a way, as a way of transformation. So we continue on with our plot, and there's a few midway stories, there's a few avenues that she goes down. But the next one I'd like to share, the next thing that jumped out at me when I was reading it, was this character that she describes, this friend of hers, old-time friend that she sort of reconnects with later in life. And I'll read this passage, and maybe we can play with it a bit in our own terms. I can add my own experiences in response to it. And it's really, this, this passage is not so much right on the, it's not an ABC a, philosophy. It's not exactly related to the general thesis of what does it mean to be lost. It's in a more roundabout way that it's related. It is related, but it's a little bit more distant than our lost travelers in new lands in the Americas. So she's made friends again with this this woman. And they're about the same age, and they're adults, they're young adults. And she's describing her impression of her. She says, quote, Three things define her for me. Her beauty, her talent, and her mercurial disposition. A natural evasiveness that tormented those who wanted to possess her. And for me meant continual surprises and an inability to keep track of her. Marine was a delicate tomboy, sultry and pale, with the soft, perfect skin of a child and fierce dark eyes, better described as long than large. I remember a furtive look she had of a cornered animal and how elegant she'd become that last night. People wanted to capture her like a wild thing and take care of her like a child. Beauty is often spoken of, as though it only stirs lust or admiration. But the most beautiful people are so in a way that makes them look like destiny or fate or meaning, the heroes of a remarkable story.
So for me, there was someone that came to mind when I read that. And I don't feel much to tell that tale today other than that I feel grateful to have known someone who fits that kind of beautiful description, that way of talking about someone. And it really is inspiring to hear someone talk about their friendship and their impression of someone. And there is something very deep about being able to say what someone is respectfully and in a colourful way, in a poetic way. And you can do this as an exercise. You can say, well, what is that person to you? What would you say about that person? And really take your time. Say a lot of things. Usually when we're relating to people, we just say, oh, oh, you're, you're this, oh, oh, you're this. And it's, a, and it's a description of the moment. It's a description of what's happening or... It's more current. Oh, you're just being annoying. Or, on the more positive side, oh, you're just being so sweet. These sorts of comments. But to really step back and say, no, more generally, more deeply, what is your understanding of this person? And this person that Solnit is talking about is one of her high school friends who was a musician and she played cello very well. So she played classical music. And then also she got into punk music. So she was the bass player in this punk band. And she was always hanging around with musicians and the sort of underground. And the punk life sort of didn't work with her too much. And, you know, to be into classical music and punk music, that's a pretty, that's a pretty eclectic sort of mix. That's a very obscure sort of eccentric type of personality that takes that. And she also did a bit of modeling or acting or these sorts of jobs. And she was also into drugs and drinking and partying. And she was just one of those, well, I guess you call her a free spirit. Have you ever met one of these people? Like a free spirit. And this is the part of the personality description or the story that doesn't really fit with who I was thinking of. And it was only just that little section that fit with the person in my mind. But as the story goes on, we find out about more of this person, Maureen, his, Mar, Mar, Maureen, I don't know how to pronounce that, anyway, whoever it is, and she makes friends with Solnit again, and there's these back and forths about, you know, they reminisce about the past, and they say, oh, this and that, and they... She talks about her boyfriends and also about her girlfriends and, oh, that's a bit kinky, that's a bit out of the place. That's, you know, all these things. And then they make they make plans for the, the future and they can see, start seeing each other on the regular. And it turns out that she's sort of lost in the wind like a lost soul. And there's a fine line between a free spirit and a lost soul. And... It comes to this point where she dies. And it's a very unexpected death. It's very sudden. And of course, Solnit is very shocked by this. And the story goes that it was drugs. And an even more heartbreaking part of the story was that 
she'd taken this drug and she wasn't coming to. She'd blacked out. And they'd given her another drug as a stimulant to try and wake her up, the people that she was with. And that was what had killed her. That combination of the two drugs. And they found out later that if they'd called the paramedic, if they'd called the ambulance, and someone had have come and known what was happening, they could have given her the correct thing and she could have been saved. She could have been alive today. If the people in that scenario had have acted accordingly. Now in that scenario, they don't want to call this they don't want to call a paramedic. Because that causes for a lot of trouble. That causes for the law to come in. Whose drugs are these? Why are you with her? That's that's jail time you're facing there. And of course, now they're facing, well, I don't know. We don't know the details. She doesn't go into the details of what happened beyond that. Now you're facing murder or manslaughter. And she doesn't go into the details. But the point is that there's this character who... Now, now, have you ever had this in life? Have you known someone who... Have you, are you old enough to have known someone who's died, first of all? And are you old enough to have known someone who has died or have you heard of someone? Maybe a distant acquaintance or a sort of fringe outer rims of your social circles. And you hear of someone who, who dies and you think, you know, they were probably on track for that. And I'm not saying they asked for it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying they deserve it. No, we don't want to be like that. But someone who lives the reckless life is more prone to these sorts of accidents. And of course, there are many deaths which are accidents, which are not by the people. They do not happen to the people who live reckless lives. And that really is a tragedy when that happens. I mean, it's always a tragedy when someone has an untimely death. But what could she have done? Does this come back to the difference between not knowing your way in a city and being lost in a city? And if you don't know your way, well, you're just fluffing around. But if you're lost, then you're romantic. And does that apply here to this this friend of Solnit's? Except much more deeper, it's not a geographical, it's more of a life direction. Like, what sort of men was she hanging around with? Why was she always in the music scene? Why was she always going to these clubs? Was she trying to fill a void? Was she running from something? And is that a lost in the sense of finding new boundaries? Stepping into the unknown for expanding your consciousness. And there is a comment here by Solnit about drugs. And She says, I don't know if, I won't quote it, I'll paraphrase it. I don't know if, she says something like, how am I going to say this? 
she says she didn't go into drugs herself. And she wonders if that was a resistance in her, a fear of the unknown, and a fear to explore consciousness. Now, drugs are not always, drugs are a broad subject. The picture we're painting here is that, oh, drugs lead to death. It's not that black and white. It's not that simple. Drugs are for people who have lost their way, not for people who are trying to be lost in a psychological sense, for spiritual reasons. No, it's not that simple. Because you can use drugs to get lost spiritually as a strategy, as a planned strategic move of your inner being. You can adventure into unknown territories with drugs. You can change your psychology, your perspective, your sense of sight, your emotions, your thoughts, and your whole phenomenological experience through drugs. But that's a big subject, and that's not what we're talking about with this woman who overdosed. She was in a situation where she died from drugs. And I don't get the impression she was doing those drugs for expanding her consciousness. And Solnit says, well, maybe she was too afraid to go into drugs. But she at least recognizes that maybe there was something there. There was a chance to get lost in a healthy way with drugs. And it's only a passing comment. She doesn't talk about drugs to much extent. She does add more of a comment on a youthful death or an untimely death. And this quote, which I'll read, is another part of this chapter. So let me, let's see what you think of this. She writes, quote, We are now at the beginning of an era whose constructions are far scarier than ruins. In the time of which I write, the new silicon-based life forms were sneaking into every intersensed without setting off alarms that all would be utterly changed in a way far more insidious than nuclear war, that they would bring a new wealth that would ease the ruins, erase the ruins. In the 1980s, we imagined apocalypse because it was easier than the strange complicated futures that money, power and technology would impose. Intricate futures hard to exist. Sorry, intricate futures hard to exit. In the same way, teenagers imagine dying young because death is more imaginable than the person that all the decisions and burdens of adulthood may take you. So the impression I get when she's talking about silicon-based life forms that sneak into our lives, well, we've got those, don't we? 
We have these smartphones in our pockets, which have sneaked past security. And they utterly change our way of living. And we've never really stopped to think, now hang on, this smartphone is encroaching on my life. Is this internet coming into me in a negative way? How is this changing me? And she talks about the, the 1980s and the Cold War. Well, this is the time of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a very big, a very big existential worry of these, these times in the 80s, which was, well, are we all going to die from nuclear war? We're trying to imagine the future. And, well, if you say, look, someone's going to drop all the bombs and there'll be nothing left... Well, in a sense, that's a simple story. That's an easy story to swallow in, in, in the sense that of, of its complexity. It's hard, to, it's hard to swallow in that it's so tragic and it's so existential and so big. But the alternative is imagining the future that we have now, which we are living, which she says is the, the future of money and power and technology. Now, trying to, trying to be in the 80s, that's 40 years ago, and imagine what we do have now. Imagine the lives we do have now, the technology, what it's doing for us, and how our technology has changed the economy, and how it is different, so much different now for how much money people have, how much wealth there is to go around, and how money works. That's very complicated. It might be easier just to say, well, no, we're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust, in a world suicide, in an existential tragedy. And maybe that's this next comment, which she says, well, there's a tendency, and, and this stuck out to me, this really stuck out to me when she said, teenagers imagine dying young because death is more imaginable than the complexities of who you are as an adult, or of who you will become as an adult. Because it really is impossible for a teenager, a young adult, to imagine how they're going to cope with adult life, what sort of person they'll turn into. Oh, this, this seems very personal. This, I can feel something opening in me now. This is, uh, I, I have to say, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, allow me to open up and I'm going to tell you that I, I had this. I had this. As a young adult, I had the feeling that I was going to die young. I had the feeling that I didn't have a future because it was so hard for me to imagine how I was going to make sense of everything, how I was going to tie all these things together, how I could even want to be at peace with it all, how I could find any solid ground to stand on, all of that. And it was so far beyond just money or how I'd make my way or where I would live or what I would do in a career. 
For me, it was existential, it was psychological, and it was emotional. How on earth am I going to live in this life? How how on earth am I going to go on? And faced with that, faced with that question, well, one of the easy answers, as dark and as daunting as it would be, is, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not going to make it. And these sort of back and forths, they're clear to me now. I can talk about them. I can articulate them. Because I have the benefit of hindsight. They're clearly differentiated. And I can read it in a book, like A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. And it can resonate with me. Because of how close to the heart it touches. And how clear it is to me now. And it's a revelation to me to learn that this is a tendency. I thought it was just me that had the idea of dying young. And it wasn't really an idea. It wasn't even a feeling. It wasn't a death wish. Now, when we talk about suicidal tendencies, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a depression We're not talking about suicide. We're just talking about this sense, this feeling. Like you get a a smell from the future. Can you smell the future? And you get this cloud that's telling you in a soft whisper that you're going to die young. Has that ever happened to you? And I hope you don't mind me sharing that it, that it happened to me. And when it comes to my story, I don't like to take I don't like to take too much time as a tangent on here. We can stay with our normal plot, the plot of this book. But there will come a time when I'll I'll share that story fully. I'll share it as a narrative. Because I'm writing my memoirs, I'm writing my autobiography. And that is a key point, that is a key staple of my life, is thinking that I'll die young. So I won't tell you the details, and I won't tell you how that climaxed. But there will come a time when I can share that. I'm writing the book. Maybe by the time you hear this, the book will be out. So, thank you for letting me share that, and... I really find it amazing that it's come up in this book. So I'll read another passage, which is more about her friend's death. And this actually articulates more about what she was saying about drugs. So this will help clarify a few more differences between a reckless life and being lost spiritually or getting lost intentionally and these life mistakes or these endings and these consequences of youth and what it means to become an adult, these sorts of things. So here we go. Let me read some more for you. Quote, In a way, it seems brave to me 
this charging into adventure without fear of consequences? Or was it a desperation in which there were more terrible things than death, a desire so urgent for the anesthesia, distraction and sense of destiny drugs seemed to offer, even a desire for death? Was I cowardly not to want to explore the farther reaches of consciousness, afraid of getting lost, of being unable to return? I have been on my own since I turned 17, and that early independence made me old. I was never sure anyone would pick up the pieces if I fell apart, and I thought of consequences. The young live absolutely in the present, but a present of drama and recklessness, of acting on urges and running with the pack they bring the fearlessness of children to acts with adult consequences. And when something goes wrong, they experience the shame or the pain as an eternal present too. Adulthood is made up of a prudent anticipation and a philosophical memory that makes you navigate more slowly and steadily. But fear of making mistakes can itself become a huge mistake, one that prevents you from living, for life is sticky, and anything less is already a loss. This is the conundrum of life. Adventure forth and maybe die. Or stay where you are and never find what treasures there are. Youth. It's a way of being. And it's a doing towards a being which isn't clear. Youth is for the thrill seeker. Youth is adventurousness. And adulthood brings the experience of youth. The lessons from mistakes. But those lessons don't necessarily lead to more explorations. Something really is lost when something new is found. Living in fear of making mistakes or in fear of making the wrong move or in fear of losing, is the mistake in as of itself in some cases. To move towards paralysis, to move towards a apathy, to be stuck where you are, 
unable to venture at all. Well, that is a death. We must find what youth has given us and bring that with us into adulthood. And we must be clear about the traps of adulthood. We must be on guard for the things in adulthood which squash the wisdom of youth. Wisdom of adulthood is not a denying of youth. It's not a moving on from youth. It's an integration. It's a recognition of the good, the bad, the risky, and the rewarding. As we make our way through life, we learn to live better. But how much can we learn? How quickly can we learn? And how much better can we learn? What is the process of learning to live? What is the process of transforming experiences into a wisdom that doesn't stop us from trying new experiences, even though we've made so many bad mistakes, even though we've made so many problems for ourselves? Is there an answer to this? Did, did Solnit know? Did Rebecca Solnit know? I don't know. She says there's many paths to take. And misery and madness lays down some of them. Just as death was down one of the paths for her friend. And it just so happened that she went down that path. So we continue on in our plot. She talks about the movie Vertigo, which is a classic movie, very famous movie, olden day movie. She talks about the sense of falling, and the sense of disorientation. There are lots of ins and outs that these characters have and themes of falling and being lost that these characters have in this movie. And there wasn't much in there that struck me. But she then goes on to talk about some Greek mythology. She's talking about snakes. She's talking about one of her boyfriends that she had that was a snake handler or a farmer. A man who lived and was in contact with snakes on a regular basis. And that triggers her memory of this Greek story of this god... Tiresias and Tiresias 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 these Greek names are hard to pronounce aren't they Tiresias basically he comes along two two snakes making love and for some strange reason he gets struck and or he struck he strikes them and he turns into a woman 
So here's this man who gets turned into a woman. Imagine that. What would you do? What would you do if you were turned into a woman? Whew. Something's going to change then. I've lost my manhood. <laughs> That's a very different meaning to the phrase, I've lost my manhood, as you get turned into a woman. Well, you know, these days there are men that turn into women. Might be becoming more common. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know what the statistics are. And maybe I would... I, I don't know what I would do. I think it would be... I, I guess I, I would make sense of it and I would make peace with it eventually. See it as an opportunity. And this, as the story goes, he comes across... Seven years later, he comes across two snakes again. And so he strikes them again and somehow he becomes a man again. So here we have this man who has been a woman and a man. Now, this is what makes him a god. This is what made him something different. And of course, what you can ask this man is very different to what you can ask only a man or a woman. And so someone asks, I think it's Oedipus, one of the other Greek gods. Maybe it's Zeus. No, I think it's, I think it's Oedipus. Yeah, it's Oedipus. And then he says, she says, well... Who gets more pleasure from sex, men or women? And he says, women do. Oh, and she's so upset that she strikes out his eyes and he's blind. And then Zeus comes along and he, he takes pity on this man that was also a woman. And he gives him this sight of seeing the future. So you can see there's a lot of symbolism in there. Like, what's the symbolism? If you can see both sides of the story and then you affirm the answer to a question in relation to those two sides of the story, which is true, then you're going to be punished for it. So speaking your truth of your experience is punishable. But somehow that punishment also turns into a deeper gift, which in this case, the case of Tiresias, was the gift of seeing the future. So he not only understood men and women, he lived as a man and a woman, but he could see the future. So that is a very strange story. That is a very strange story of loss and then gaining something from it. You lose your manhood to become a woman. And then, well, I guess he didn't even have to turn back into a man. Maybe he did. He was a man twice. But then to lose your sight, to be able to see the future. Imagine if you could only see the future. I mean, what would you do? I mean, this guy, he... This God, he sat in a kingdom and he became a prophet. And when you become a prophet, you basically just sit around. And I guess people come to see you like an oracle. And there were oracles in those times. There are oracles in these mythological stories. And they really don't say much. They sort of just sit around all day. But then when someone comes 
from a long way away. They pay them very large sums of money to hear what they have to say. And they're commenting on big things. They're commenting on, on war or on international relations or on marriages of the monarchies or the royalty. How will our harvest be? Does our kingdom have a rich future? These sorts of big questions. So to be a prophet is a it's quite a unique job. There's not many people that really fit that description, that job description these days. <laughs> I don't know how many prophets we have. I don't know if that word, well, words are slippery. The word prophet means something very different today than it did back in the day. So that's another little avenue that I really like to read about in this book. There's another comment about romance and Greek philosophy. And she's talking about Aristotle. You know Aristotle, don't you? As A.C. Grayling would say, yes, you were reading his book in the bath last night. <laughs> A.C. Grayling, that's his, that's his handle. When he ever quotes someone, he says, oh, you know all about him, don't you? Because you were reading in the bath. It's quite a, quite a cute handle. I wonder if I've got any handles like that. Anyway, I'm babbling now. Let's get back to the story. Here we go. Here we go. Let me read some. So we're talking about Aristotle and romance. And she writes, quote, The word romance once meant this kind of questing journey, heroic, adventurous, or mysterious, says my dictionary. The older meaning suggests that romances in other senses, as in a love story, too, should move through space and desire. Comedy, said Aristotle, ends in marriage. But since marriage is something other than an end, romance, in one sense or both, is what continues on after, or it too lapses into tragedy. So here we get this idea of something morphing into something else. Comedy ends in marriage. <laughs> Does that mean that when you get married, all the jokes are over? <laughs> all the fun is over when you get married? <laughs> Somehow I don't, I don't know if that's the official interpretation of what Aristotle's saying there, but that's the impression that I get. <laughs> and what, well, what continues? Does romance continue once you get married? Well, I guess it has to continue. Otherwise, it lapses into tragedy. When does comedy lapse into tragedy? There is a point where that happens. <laughs> and romance and tragedy, tragedy well, there, there's a correlation there. It's a funny triangle, comedy, romance, and tragedy, isn't it? 
Because you can't have comedy without tragedy. They're two sides of the same coin. Comedy is that moment where you think everything's gone wrong, but it hasn't really gone wrong. You know it hasn't really gone wrong. Now, I was at the pool today, and this daddy walked past with his two kids, little kids. And the dad, daddy says they're walking across the rocks, and there's a lot of rock, rock shelves where I go. And the daddy says to the kid, now watch out because it's very slippery. You might fall over. Just be careful. And they keep walking and then slip, the dad falls over. <laughs> and the kids laugh a little bit and they say, oh, look, daddy fell over. And, and the added part of the story was they kept walking a bit more. And again, the, da- the dad said, oh, careful, you don't want to slip over like I did. And then one of the kids did fall over. <laughs> and even the dad had a bit of a giggle. So why is that funny? That's funny because something goes wrong, but it's actually not really that wrong. And it was even the punchline of them falling over, the slapstick, was even set up by them saying it. So they set up their own slapstick. It's almost like he he did a prophecy for his own falling over. And that's why it came true. That, that's, a, that's a very interesting prophecy to make, isn't it? <laughs> Speaking your own. Would he have fallen over if he hadn't have said anything? Maybe not. Ooh, the twister of telling the future. <laughs> but for the person who falls over, it, it's a tragedy. It's like, ah, oh, damn. Something has gone wrong. Everyone else is laughing. It feels so bad to be laughed at when you fall over in the slippery rocks. It's so embarrassing. So you think something has gone wrong. That's the tragedy. But, you, you know, you stand up, you brush yourself off, and you're not really hurt. So it's okay. And that's, the, that's a micro example of the difference between comedy and tragedy. Now, in a tragedy, when a tragedy ends, it always ends in tragedy. It just stops with something went wrong, And there was no resolution. Romeo and Juliet killed themselves. There was no coming back to life. There was no peace to be made. There was no happily ever after. It's the tragedy. And that tragedy and, well, the, the romance of Romeo and Juliet. Well, if you had have paired comedy with the romance, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been the same play. It wouldn't be the same work of Shakespeare. So it's a philosophical triangle to keep with you. Tragedy, comedy, and romance. And I like it. I like it. I hope I don't slip over on the rocks myself. So we venture forth in our plot, and she starts talking about the French artist, Ives Klein. A very strange man. And he learnt judo, a kind of martial arts, and went to Asia to study and become really good at judo. He became a black belt. 
and he also did flying. He wanted to do flying. He had this interest in flying. And, well, his claim to fame was not only poetry, but art. And he has these artworks which are very, very strange, very postmodern. For example, he has that one where there's these 12 paintings, and they're only blue. They're just blue. So it's a canvas, painted blue, and there's 12 of them, all the same size, but they're all a different price. Try to get your head around that one. And then another one was one of his art exhibitions had a whole bunch of blue balloons tied up and he released them into the sky. So we come back to this idea of blue and the unknown and no boundary infinity and what blue represents. He did a whole bunch of things with blue. He has these paintings where it looks as though he's put blue paint on this body of this woman and she's pressed her body or, or the canvas has been pressed against her, whichever one, up against the wall and you get this press impression, you get this print of the female body. It's quite sensual. It's quite attractive. You can look them up on Google. They're very... Uh, nice to look at and then on the other side of that she he's got the man but that's actually a cast so the woman is a press against the flat but the man is naked and you have these naked men sticking out from the wall and he's painted the blue so the difference between a impression or a symbol representation and the actual real thing is what's happening there because you have a when you have a cast well you assume that a cast is a exact copy of that man's body that person's body so it's not a representation but is it a representation that's the question that's the thing that he raises and this difference between representation or symbolism and the real thing is one of the things she discusses in this book. She brings up these men who tried to make a map that was one-to-one -one scale. And of course, they realized that, well, it wouldn't be... It, it, it's impossible, because not only is it taking up the same exact space and size, but it would have to be 3D, and also the environment is changing. So the grass grows... And people move about the place, and there's no way to have a one-to-one -one map scale. And there's this parable. There's an old parable, which is that there's an emperor in his kingdom, and he's got his servants and his advisors and his slaves and his guards. And he's walking around his kingdom and he's all full of himself of, oh, isn't this an amazing kingdom? I'm so rich. There's so much beauty and it's all for me. And he calls one of his poets and he says, look at how grand my empire is and how much beauty and wealth is here for me because of me. The gods favor me. Write a poem that perfectly describes this empire of mine. And the poet thinks quite hard and he deliberates and 
brainstorms up. How can he say in just a few words how brilliant this emperor's kingdom is? And of course, he doesn't want to get it wrong. He doesn't want to say something that's not grand because the emperor will kill him. The emperor will say, not good enough, off with his head. So the poet digs deep and somehow some magic comes over him. And what he says comes out of his mouth and the words are so real and so true as to fit the empire that the empire turns into the poem and it disappears into the words. So the descriptive poem is a perfect map. It's the map of one-to-one. And this parable of the emperor and the poet has another version, which is that of the painter. So in another version of this story, the emperor goes to his painter and he says, Look at my vast empire. Paint me a picture which shows how grand it is and how real it is and how magnificent it is that the gods have favoured me. And the painter paints his painter And he paints it up and he works it all together and the emperor comes to see it. And as he walks towards the painting, he gets closer and closer to the painting and the painting gets bigger and bigger. And he keeps trying to walk closer and closer, but something happens. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and he walks into the painting and he becomes part of the painting. And then he's interacting with the objects in the painting. And the border, the outside, the frame of that painting has expanded further and further until it disappears. And the emperor finds himself inside reality again. Inside the painting, but it's his empire. So these parables are illustrating this idea of representation and what it means for a boundary to be lost what it means to know the difference between the map and a territory and I guess in this case the, the emperor and the poet and the painter they're, they're confusing the map or the territory or they're, they're sort of reversing the insight that you can't confuse the map and the territory and they say well what happens if you can what would happen what would that look like So now we get into some linguistic acrobats. I like this. This is so fun. How's this for a quote? Quote, They signify that the cartographers knew they did not know and awareness of ignorance is not just ignorance, it's awareness of knowledge's limits. Do you know what you don't know? <laughs> In other words, here's another quote. To imagine that you know, to populate the unknown with projections, is very different from knowing that you don't, and the old maps depict both states of mind. So she's talking about the time in the world when they didn't know what land was out there, and some of those maps which they drew, they would just say terra incognita, 
We don't know. Other maps they tried to guess. And there are maps where America is half the size of Australia in comparison to <laughs> in comparison to Europe or Euro- Europe takes up 80% of the map and <laughs> and and America is just this tiny little island along next to Africa these sorts of maps so that's that's an example of projecting and the difference between that and not knowing so here's another quote worry is a way to pretend that you have knowledge or control over what you don't and it surprises me even in myself how much we prefer ugly scenarios to the pure unknown perhaps fantasy is what you fill your filled up maps you filled up maps with rather than saying that they too contain the unknown end quote do you worry at all do you know when someone's worrying Is it easier just to say I don't know or not? Is it easier to worry? Because if you worry, you at least have some sense that you are sure, you can be sure that it's going to happen. Now, if someone's worrying, the last thing you want to say to them is, <laughs> well, you don't know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> that's the last thing a worrying person needs to hear. That's, the, that's, just, that's just going to make them worry even more. Well, it could turn out wrong. It could go wrong. How do you know? We don't know it. <laughs> I'll just use it for another reason to worry. So here we go. This is some nice linguistic backflips and acrobats. This is what I was trying to get to just before. And they're talking about the war in Iraq and this comment about knowing or not knowing and knowing that you don't know. So here we go for some backflips. Quote, During the build-up, to the recent war on Iraq, whose two great central rivers come as close as anything on earth to the biblical paradise which for rivers flowing out of it, one of the cultures making the case for bombing Baghdad's civilians said, there are known knowns, there are things we know we know. We also know there are unknowns. That is to say, We know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. This third category would prove crucial in the spasms and catastrophes of the war. And the philosopher Slavoj Zizek added that he had left out a fourth term. The unknown knowns, things we don't know that we know, which is precisely the Freudian unconscious, the the knowledge that doesn't know itself, as Lucan used to say. And he went on to say that the real dangers are in the disavowed beliefs, suppositions, and obscure practices we pretend not to know about the terra incognita spaces on maps say that knowledge is too, knowledge too is an island surrounded by oceans of the unknown but whether we are on land or water is another story End quote. 
It's in these philosophical hair-splitting that I get really excited about words. And I really get this sensation in my mind of what it's like to experience words. And I was drawn to this awareness. I was drawn to this part in my being as I read this passage about unknown knowns and known knowns and all those different variations. And on one hand, it's very confusing. You can easily say, well, it's just a mash of words. Is there really an insight there? Or is it just philosophical hair-splitting? Is it just babble? But on the other hand, it illustrates the difference. It illustrates the structure of words and how it relates to the actual experience of knowledge. Now, I wish there was a different word for knowledge, because I mean knowledge here not in the way that they use it. They're trying to get at it. This quote tries to get at the difference. And that really is the limit of words, is that you can only use the word, we can only use the words we've got. If only there was a word for that which we don't have a word for. If only there was a way of talking about the beyond, the lost, talking about what we don't know. And here, when he says that there is a, well, well she's quote, quoting Zizek, and there are known unknowns, things that we don't know that we know, which knowledge doesn't know itself. So not knowledge not knowing itself, there's the problem, because we have knowledge as if it's a character, or as if it's an entity, not knowing itself. And knowing is like the verb. Knowing is the doing action. Knowing as the, the active part of knowledge. So this word knowledge is very, it's very tricky. It's, very, it's used here in very subtle different ways. So let's answer this question. What does it mean to know that you know? What does it mean to have knowledge that knows? And of course you can extend this and you can say, well, how do you know that? How do you go beyond that? Can you know that you know that you know? I'm reminded of an Alan Watts quote. Is there an Alan Watts poet poem about this? The thing in me that starts to see, that knows that I know that I know. Something like that. I'm sure you know it as you remember it because you were reading Alan Watts in the bath last night. I hear A.C. Grayling saying, But really, what this gets at with these words is finding, we're entering through words. So we've entered the unknown through geography. We've entered the unknown through a 
lost lifestyle. We've entered the unknown through a culture shock, being into another culture. There are all sorts of ways we enter into the unknown, but here we're trying to get at it through knowledge. We're trying to see where do our words break down. And this fumbling around, well, I I call it fumbling around, but she actually does it very eloquently. And that is one of the components of knowing or not knowing. And that's one thing that it comes back to, which is personal, which is when knowledge is nested in the person that has it, which is how eloquently do they navigate it. And you you can discover that by simply listening to the person. Now here, Rebecca Solnit is beautifully writing. She's relaxed. She's handing it to us in a concise and clear way. She's being careful with it. She's giving us clarity. And there's no distress I don't get the impression that she's distressed in this novel. Now, when you hear someone talk, like Zizek, you can ask the same question. Well, is he delivering it clearly? Is it clear to him? Is he okay with it? And you can say, well, he's solid and he's stuck in his ways and he's really clinging to his ideas. Or you can say he's very fluid and he's okay with not knowing. He's very good at explaining the unknown. But that applies to everyone. And there is also a difference between, in, between being able to talk clearly and being clear with ideas yourself. There's a difference there. And it's not always so obvious. Usually people who talk clearly do actually have clarity that's a that's a another big web that is hard to untangle it's a web to go into so my answer to this question is it clear or do you know that you know is well how do you feel about it how does it sit with you How does it feel to say, I don't know? And that's a big question because you can say, I don't know, to a lot of things. You could even make it a mantra. You could say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Throughout your day, you just say, I don't know. Something comes up again and you say, I don't know. And it can also become a defense. So there's a psychological defense of I don't know, which means actually there is something you do know because you can know things. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. That's an important component of this. That's one of the things that is part of this tapestry. There are known knowns. That's the very start of this quote. There are known knowns, full stop. So you can't leave that out. And if you're going around and saying, I don't know, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't know how I feel, then that can be a defense for facing up how you feel. 
or facing what you actually do know about yourself or what you do know about the situation or what is happening. And now we come to the last chapter. She talks about a tortoise that she makes friends with. It's quite remarkable the lives that the tortoise has. They move very slowly. They don't eat very much. They don't travel very far outside their home. They live for a very long time. The life of a turtle is probably pretty good. She tells this story of where she sees a turtle crossing the road and she gets out and saves it from being run over by a car or something like that. There's some personal interaction that she has with a turtle and that as a memory stays with her. And in relation to that, she tells this parable of this famous Buddhist tale. And it goes something like this. There are two monks which are sworn to stay away from women. They've taken the vow of brahmancharya or chastity or celibacy, whatever it is. And they come to the edge of a turbulent river one day. And there's a woman there that insists they help her to cross. And one of the monks lets her climb onto his shoulders and they cross the river. And then the monk sets her down and she heads off. And then once she's gone, the other monk who didn't carry her turns to him and says something about, Oh, you've broken your vows. How could you have done that? To which the man says, the the monk who carried her says, Why are you still carrying her? I put her down on the far side of the river. So carrying something psychologically has something different to it than carrying something physically. And this memory that Solnit has of saving the turtle is something that she carries psychologically. So she then goes on to talk about the environment. And just as we have these explorers going into these lands and interacting with these natives, well, the story continues. History moved forward because America was colonized and there were gold rushes and there were these mines that opened up to find all the gold. And towns sprung up And civilization moved forward. There was farms, there was agriculture, and there were natural resources which were taken out of the ground, taken out of the land. She talks quite a lot about that, not just in America, but in all sorts of countries. And this idea of really beyond colonization, but development, community the scarring of the land through civilization and the moving into modern times of this idea of finding something. It's the idea of progress. So you you have this sense like, 
we've really found something. Yeah, we found all the gold. Oh, yeah, we built this new society. Oh, we have all this amazing land. We've built this, these buildings. We have this civilization now. But we says, she says, so generally, and through a beautiful discussion and many intricate examples, that you lose something when that happens. You lose something from the environment. And there are many animals that go extinct. There are many species that go extinct. And she doesn't turn it into a cry for help for the environment. There is a little bit of that, but she's not appealing to outrage. She's too smart for that. Because she does also give examples of the organizations which came in and said, no, we shouldn't develop too much. We should have policies which, re- which protect the environment. And there are examples of that throughout history. There are government organizations that aware, are aware of the environment. And there are conservation programs. There are national parks. There are things that are heritage listed these sorts of programs. Now, of course, we, we can go a lot more. There's a lot more to be done. And I'm not saying by any means that it's a balanced. In, it's very much not balanced in the, in the way of nature as in the biosphere when it comes to human beings scarring the land. And, and even in my own town, I drive past this sign that someone's putting on their, put on their fence and it says, stop overdevelopment, protect our community. And I sometimes laugh at that and I think <laughs> it's too late for that because look at all the houses that are around. There's so much. Now, you can say, I mean, I was thinking this just today. It was like, well, say you have one lot of land with one house on it. And in that house lives a man and a wife in their happily married life and they have two kids. Well, In that scenario, now this is very rough ABC economics and I'm not an economic, so watch me fall around, watch me fumble around with this. Just just go with me on this. I know it's not, really we should get my brother in to talk about economics. (laughs) Maybe we can have him on. But basically you have your house, two people, two kids. Now when those two kids grow up, they're going to go off and they're going to get married. And they're going to get married, let's say, in our fantasy land, to people who also lived in a family of two children. Now, in that scenario, you say, well, now you've got a man and a wife and they need to buy a house to live. And their parents grow up and they die and they move on, move to the other world, and now there's a house available to buy. Now, in that sense, in that scenario, it's sustainable. One house per person one house per couple. There's no growth. There's no development. Now, of course, in reality, we're having more kids. In reality, things grow much faster than that. In reality, we're having a population spike like you wouldn't believe, and we have been for the last 400 years. So in the other extreme, which is what I think this man is getting at when he has this sign on his fence, saying stop our overdevelopment in our community. In the other extreme, someone buys this lot of land with this house for two people on it. 
And they say, okay, let's knock, da- knock down this house for two people and let's put up a set of flats. And that flat is going to be enough for eight families. So now we have eight pairs and they can all have kids as well. Maybe they have one or two kids each. And that way we can make more money because we're selling that land for smaller pieces. We're slicing up the pie. But of course, that ability, that accommodation makes it possible for more people to come. Now, the whole, the whole triggers of what comes first, the land or the humans, the houses or the humans, that's economics. That's the game of in and out. That's statistics. I don't want to go too far down that. But here in this book, Solnit is describing what it means to be losing something by gaining civilization. And one of those things is the development. It's property development. It's overpopulation. So she's not a full-out green meme. Well, I guess she is a green meme in, in some ways, but the, the amount of the emphasis that she puts in the book is, is well-balanced. It's not too much of a... Like, no one likes a, an activist... No one likes a book with a, well, maybe, I guess people do like it. I mean, the green meme, love it. A book with a message of, oh, we need to save the environment. And that, in a sense, is her message. The message is there. It's just put in a very, it's put in a very intelligent way. It's put in a very enticing way. She's not an activist in the way that she's a put-off like most activists are, I find. And the green meme, that's a big, big rabbit hole. So she then goes on to talk about this experience with a Zen monastery. And she sits and she listens to a parable or a story in a Zen center by a Zen man who's telling the story about a blind man. Now, when we talk about being lost, imagine how the blind feel wonder what it's like to be lost as a blind man. Do, do blind people get lost very often? Do blind people know where they are very often? And he tells this story about this blind monk who comes to the monastery to sell candy. And he comes there every day and someone decides to follow him after he's left, to see how he gets around. And he follows the monk out, and he's walking around with his cane, his feeler. And the blind monk has come to the main road, a few blocks down from the monastery. And he's stuck. He can't cross the road. And so what he does is he stands there, and he calls out, Help! 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 So there's this blind monk standing at this busy road just calling out help. And this is his strategy to just say, well, I'm stuck here. I'll just wait until someone comes and helps me. And that really is quite an insightful lesson to be learnt about being lost and about trusting how to find your way. 
And that's the beauty of these Zen stories. That's the beauty of these Zen parables is they're so simple and yet somehow we get an essence of what it means for a larger application, what it means on our, on our life, for our lives. And I mean, let's just try and think about it. Let's think it through. What would, what would happen if you took that attitude, if you just came up against a problem and you just called out, help, well, I need help. What would you do if you did that with your business? Can you help me with this? What would you do if you had this with your relationship? If you had a relationship problem, you said, can you help me with this? And you asked just anybody. Ask around. And keep asking until you find it. And what if you had a problem with your personal life? Or with your inner life? What if you were able to say help? What if you could say that to yourself? And you take a look in the mirror and say, help me. Can you help me? Do you have the strength to help me? Do you know how to help me? Or even larger than that, what does it mean to open up to existence? Now, Usually when someone's on their knees opening to existence and saying, help me God, or existence, please help me, it's in a time of real crisis. There's something really going wrong for them. There's something big that's happening that is totally out of their hands. Dear God, help us all. That sort of scenario. But what if you came to that voluntarily? Does help come only ever in the proportion of which it's deserved? Does help only ever come in the proportion of which is adequate for the problem that you have? Well, if that's true, shouldn't you bring your biggest problem to have help for it? Shouldn't you bring your deepest problem to existence? And to say, this is out of my hands. This is beyond my reach. This is beyond my ability. And you can say, well, God's not listening. God doesn't exist. Well, that just makes it so that you are putting conditions onto which the help can take form. You're putting your idea on what it means for help to come to you. Because you can't know how you will be helped. You can't know in which way you will be helped. Just like this Zen monk standing at the side of the road didn't know. He didn't know who would come. He didn't know how long it would be he would be there. It might be that robbers come along. It might be someone comes along that doesn't know how to help him. Maybe it's someone elderly that needs help crossing the road themselves. So don't put conditions on the help. You have to be sincere and open when you ask for help. Especially when you're talking to existence. The bigger the thing that you're addressing, the more open you should be. 
And the more open you are and the more sincere you are, the bigger the problem you can bring to it. Now there's one more line that I'd like to share with you. And this really sums up the whole thing very nicely. It's a very satisfying ending to the book. And we've talked about a lot. There's so many different versions of this idea of getting lost. This idea, this philosophy of the unknown. And She's a beautiful writer. You really should read this book for yourself because the way she puts words together and the way it flows is very unique and just it's a charming it's got it's got the feminine touch that's what i can call it it's got the i really should read more female authors i wish i would i really wish i would because there's something in the woman that is very ah i just think they're beautiful let me just say that much and i don't know what she looks like i think she's much older now but I can imagine she's a beautiful soul. She'd be very fun to have conversations with. Very nice to talk to. I wonder if she's got a presence online. I don't know. I haven't looked. So this is the one of the last lines of the book, and she's summing it up. And here it is. She says... Quote, I had realized that the end of the world could be a place as well as a time. So when these early explorers made these maps, there was a time when they believed there was an end to the world. Where if you sailed your ship far enough, you would fall off. That has been an idea in human history. And during the Cold War, we were thinking that there would be an end to the world because of this nuclear war this nuclear holocaust. And the end of the world as a place, well, there's also the end of the world as in that something's changed drastically. My world ended on that day. Do you have life experiences that you can say that about? You have a point in time where you can say, my whole world changed. And in a sense, I was brought into a whole new world when that happened. And of course, that can mean something very dark. But it can also mean something beautiful. It can mean so much. And if we really look at these, both the expanding of the map 
through human history and our idea of a nuclear holocaust. They're both not as final as we think. Because we can say now, well, we've mapped everything. We know everywhere. We know every place. The maps are done. We've discovered the world. But then I can say to you, well, can you recall every place in the world? Do you know the names of every city in the world? If we got you a piece of paper and we sat you down and we just said, no, don't look it up on the internet, just draw a map of the world. Now, that would be a telling exercise in geography knowledge. Just draw a map of the world. Label the countries you can and see how close you get. And I'm guessing it's not going to be 100%. So to say that the whole world is mapped is not exactly right. It's not exactly transitionable into the personal experience of every human. And in the case of nuclear holocaust or nuclear war, we can say, well, now, the vast majority of people would die, but there would be people that wouldn't die. Surely, there would be somewhere on this planet that was inhabitable. Surely, there would be some breakthrough, some organization or something that would continue the human story. Humans are very inventive. Humans are very prone to survival. So yes, I think even if the bombs fell, I think this story would continue. And that would be the end of that still it would still be the end of the world. That would be the day they would say that the world ended. So this idea of the end of something and coming into something new, loss and going beyond, well, it's always a blurred line. And most of the time for us, it's gradual. Most of the, most of the time for us, it's incremental. There are only a handful of significant events in life. And there are only a handful of significant events in human history depending on how much, how much detail you want to go into. It's all a matter of resolution, like the pixels on a camera when we talk about history. There are levels of generalizations when we talk about these big historical things. So is the end of the world a place? Or is it a time? Or is it an, an event? And is it personal? Or is it global? And what does it mean for you and your experience of reality? So I hope you've enjoyed these words. I've definitely enjoyed talking about them. There's a lot in it. It's a dense book. It's a very dense book. And I've by no means shared all of it. There's, a, there's still more in there. And I hope I'm not getting done for 
copyright infringement or intellectual property. This is for educational purposes only. And I get no affiliate marketing for this book. I'm just talking about it because of the joy of it. So go and read it if you'd like. It's touched me deeply. And we really want to get into more of this this dense literature, this quoting of quoting of quoting, or quotes within quotes of within quotes, and get a sense of get a sense of knowledge being a process of refining. When you get deep into the path of knowledge, you start to see that books within books within books is it's a never-ending process. So we read, we read books from the past. Yes, that's important. And we do go back to the original sources, but we also read things which are tapestries, things which weave together many sources. And then we then go beyond that and weave together many of those. So be aware of that as a one of the one of the pillars of the path of knowledge. Because it's it's ever expanding. You can, in my mind, it expands out into one direction and it expands into into well into all directions. Because we could go back and we could read, like we talked about uh, David Henry Thoreau. So what you can do is when you read a book like A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit, is then you go and look up some of these books that she's quoted, and you might want to read On Life in the Woods by Thoreau. And then you go back and you read another book and you, you build up that knowledge, that quality. Because you can't, you can't do it too much the other way. You can't only read summary books or you can't only read books that talk in generalizations. Integral theory is like that. If you read Ken Wilber's work, that's, that's pretty much all metaphysics. It's all generalizations. And I don't want to sound like that's a bad thing. It's brilliant. But you realize that for him, for Ken Wilber the man, for him it's not just metaphysics because he actually knows, he's actually read the books. So for him when he quotes something and he's putting in two sentences, well for him those two sentences is an entire book that he's read. It's astonishing when you really consider it. When you really... When you really appreciate someone's intellect, it's astonishing. It is mind-blowing. It gets me every time. So for him to read that book, you know, this is an old book. This is from back in the day. It's from history or psychology. It's an original work by someone. It's by a pioneer. It's by a researcher. So original research.